Welcome to the True Story London podcast. I'm Michelle Toth. In this podcast, we listen to a true personal story told live at one of our shows in London, followed by a conversation with the storyteller about their background, process, story themes, and more. Today's storyteller is Dee Gibson, sharing how she realized her charmed life wasn't actually going in the direction she wanted and what she did about it. Despite the difficult and unique circumstances, Dee manages to make this story highly relatable with insights into breaking with tradition, listening to intuition, and pursuing an unexpected path. Afterwards, she and I have a really interesting conversation about all of these topics and more. But first, let's listen to her story recorded live at 21 Soho. It took me about 30 years to figure out I'm not just a walking head. Because up until that point, I'd marched through my life to somebody else's tune. And I just kind of thought, well, this is life. This is what you do, isn't it? So I was born in London to Sri Lankan parents who'd come over here for my father's career. And we lived in one of those kind of tumbling down East End houses with no heating and six of my father's brothers, all studying to doctors, accountants and lawyers, right? In Sri Lanka, education is everything. And my parents were very ambitious and a baby really wasn't going to cut it. So they sent me back to Colombo to live with my grandparents out there. And... I was pretty naughty, but I remember nothing but abundant love and chocolate. And I used to dance around and we played hide and seek. And my granddad used to take me around Sri Lanka with him. He was an engineer around to all these building sites. And by the time I came back to London at the age of four, I was quite podgy. I had a terrible bowl haircut. I couldn't speak any English and I had a sister. So my parents promptly moved us out to the suburbs. They wanted a better life for us and they, you know, sent us to a private girls' school. And um, me and my sisters were the only brown girls in the school. (laughs) And at home, it was all about education. So anything less than an A wouldn't cut it. We did the whole Sri Lankan thing, extra maths lessons, elocution, piano, dancing, you name it, we did it. I used to be woken up early on a Saturday morning to watch TV. Don't get excited. It wasn't Tizwaz or Swap Shop. Oh, no, it was men in brown suits on BBC Two telling you how your brain worked. (laughs) I did have a party once. Yeah, it was a coming-of-age party, so the world and its brother turned up to my house because I'd started my periods. (laughs) So school was my escape. It was my freedom. And I was hanging out with Penny Smith. And Penny Smith had curls and a ruffle collar and a pearl necklace, even at the age of 13. And I so wanted to be like her. So I morphed myself into a brown Penny Smith. I even took up smoking. I smoked behind the bike sheds and I got caught and suspended for it. But everyone loved me. I was just like them. So I shortened my name to D. I wanted to be an architect, but it wasn't part of the Holy Trinity. It was, certainly wasn't in the Sri Lankan guidebook to how to raise a good girl. And, you know, I really didn't know how to fight my parents on it. So they were well-intentioned and I just allowed myself to be corralled into a more traditional career. So I left university. I swapped my ruffled collars and pearl necklace for a sharp 90s suit. And I started to climb the ladder in the city, a career in finance. <laughs> <laughs> 
God, it was boring. It really, really was. And I anesthetized myself and I kind of skidded through my 20s in a haze of fags and wine and dance floors and hockey pitches and climbing this so-called ladder wherever it went. And I remember thinking, I'm just a walking head. So it came around to 1999, Y2K was looming. I was 30 by this point. People were getting engaged and I thought, oh Christ, my ovaries are about to expire any minute now. <laughs> and I'd managed to swerve all the introductions to eligible Sri Lankan bachelors and I got engaged to my English boyfriend. But then somehow we swapped the Zinger burgers and the dance floors for competitive three-course meals served up to really middle-of-the-road jazz. Everyone was talking about their house prices, <laughs> having babies. And I thought, oh, I don't know. I don't know about this. But I put it down to pre-wedding nerves. And then something really strange happened in January of that year. This thing that I'd been in control of from the neck down for 30 odd years on dance floors and hockey pitches and climbing that ladder stopped working. And I couldn't make a 20 minute tube ride without getting off hyperventilating. I spent January in the loos at work having panic attacks. And I thought, oh, this is not right. So I pulled the plug and I called time on my wedding six months before the big day. So as you could imagine, the stuff hit the fan in every direction. But my fiancé realized that I was just a walking head and that I was frustrated in life. And he also realized we weren't actually right for each other. And he said to me, you know, it's just a shame you left it so late and it was so public. But I understand. And you know what? I want change too. I'm going to go traveling. I'm going to take a year out and I'm going to travel around the world. And I suggest you take a leaf out of my book and follow your heart. And I remember that lunch really vividly. And he walked off into the distance with his bag slung over his shoulder. And I felt relief from head to toe. I had quite a wild weekend. <laughs> Monday came and I'm coming home from work and my phone rang. And somebody told me that there had been a terrible accident and my fiancé had died. Yes, so that was the first time I lost my head and my legs collapsed. I don't actually remember getting home. And um, his family scooped me up and asked me to speak at his funeral. And I remember at the very last minute thinking, oh, Christ, I don't think I can do this. I was panicking. And then, boom, I heard his voice. Don't you dare. You get up there. You owe me this. So I did. I got up and I publicly declared my love and respect for my friend. Obviously, something like that messes you up. We were all messed up. And I went back to being disembodied in the city. Um, and then about a year later, I found this advert for an interior design and architecture course. And I thought, this could be interesting. So I signed up. And at the end of the year, I literally had come alive. At the end of the year, I had a choice. I go back to my 10-year finance career. I was doing pretty well on that ladder or start right from the beginning, which is quite a scary thought at the age of 32 when your parents are talking to you about sitting on the shelf and saying, interior, what now? But I remember that conversation with my fiancé and I thought about all of the opportunities that he didn't have. And I thought about that voice that said, you owe me this. And I thought, oh, fuck it. 
So I dived into my new life. That was 20 odd years ago. But it all came full circle in 2016. I took my husband and my two girls to Sri Lanka, back to the motherland. And we landed in Colombo. And I remember standing on the tarmac and thinking, God, the sense memory was overwhelming. You know, there's a quality of heat in the air. There's something on your skin, the smell, not to mention the fact that everyone looked like me. (laughs) And at the end of the two weeks, I made the fastest decision I've ever made in my life. And I bought some land. I had no idea how I was going to pay for it, what I was going to do with it. But I did it anyway. You owe me this, right? And I subsequently built a small hotel. And this thing has taken on a life of its own. So there I am 30 years later, after I've been corralled into a finance career, doing the thing that I love, architecture, art. And I built it from the ground up. And it's almost like it's a physical embodiment of what I want physically, emotionally, spiritually. So today I'm Dee and Dinesha. I'm kind of my own cocktail of British Sri Lankan. I've uh, managed to give up the fags. I've kept the wine, obviously. (laughs) I've taken up yoga and I'm more than just a walking head. Dee, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Michelle. I'm so happy to be here. I'm very excited. How does it feel listening to that story back after so many months? Oh my God. It was amazing to hear it back because when I was up there telling the story, you're telling your own story so you know what's coming next. But I was so wanting to make it perfect that I think I was very conscious of what I was saying, not really listening necessarily and tuning into the moment. So it's just really nice being a listener. I mean, there's so many elements to it I'd love to discuss more. For example, your upbringing you're in this home with your parents and your six uncles. Mm -hmm. What was that like? Can you remember? Yeah. I mean, I remember the house being just cold and dark and big, but then I was only kind of four. So I suppose it was going to be like that. But I do remember it being a very lively, happy place. And um, I'm very close to my uncles, or I certainly was at that age. And because it was their eldest brother, and I was the eldest child, the only baby around, so I felt just a lot of love. So I have these really strong memories of my uncles kind of, oh, Dinny, and sort of playing with my cheeks and bouncing me up and down and giving me lots of chocolate. And it was incredible. And then we had to move, you know. I came back and, and my second sister had already been born, so it was time to get some space of our own. So life in those days was interesting because it must have been really strange. I don't remember not speaking English, but I do remember going to primary school. And I'm lucky in terms of not ever being aware of any sort of direct racism, but I do remember being in the primary school. There must have been moments when I was picked on because coming home and speaking to my grandmother who was living with us and quite fearsome. You know, she was one of these really cute little grandmothers with big bottle lens glasses so her eyes look really big but she was fearsome (laughs) she's like you go into that school and you get that boy so I was kind of taught by her really to stand up for myself and maybe just have a bit of a spine from quite early on oh what a gift yeah yeah. to have both the role model and the encouragement the coaching you go back (laughs) you go back I, I remember sort of trying to fit in with people because I suppose we must have been in the minority in that school but always having lots of friends. Well, I love the part about fitting in and being the brown Penny Smith. I mean, I love it in the sense that it's interesting. You use the word morphed. Mm -hmm. I morphed myself into a brown Penny Smith. Yeah. 
Were you similar in some ways or was it all? Yeah, I think we were. I think we probably were. I mean, you know, she was a very good friend of mine and um, I had great friends at school, but it was weird because I had this life at home and and home was 20 miles away from school. Oh my. So we'd walk to the end of our road, 7.30 in the morning, and there'd be this sort of little straggly group of local kids going from our place to Bedford. So the minute I stepped onto the coach... I was me, but I was a an English version of me, if that makes sense. And school was my social life. And then I'd come home at weekends and in the evenings and I'd watch some TV. There was lots of studying. And it was much more of a traditional background. It was get your books. Why didn't you get an A? What do you mean it was an A minus? You know, that kind of thing. You know, the typical thing that you'd expect. I didn't feel like I wasn't being me, but I felt like I really extra specially wanted to fit in when I was at school. Because I was the eldest cousin and the eldest child, and we were 20 miles away, and we were sort of Sri Lankan, essentially. It's not like my parents were really hooked into British culture. And um, obviously, fashion, especially in the 80s, really came along. It was that real (laughs) new romantic thing, wasn't it? The ruffle you know, all the stuff, back home to hair, the works. The day of the pedal pusher arrived. And my mum, I came home from school one day and she said, oh, I've got a little surprise for you. And she never really did anything like this. Not because she didn't want to, I just don't think she had any time. But she'd obviously been gripped in a moment of shopping and gone and got me these pedal pushers. But they weren't the really nice slinky pedal pushers that all my friends wore. <laughs> they were like those kind of Henry VIII type things <laughs> that sort of did up with a button on the <laughs> And it was just, oh, God. I mean, even she laughed, bless her. She said, yeah, we're taking those back. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Okay, so you talked about going off to uni and a career. You ended up in the city being kind of moved along by other people's expectations. Mm -hmm. You said, I didn't know how to fight my parents. No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't know how to fight my parents when I left for university. I mean, it was all very well-intentioned, you know, because education is so big in Sri Lanka. And as we know, it's the way out of quite a poor lifestyle. My parents were, you know, fairly well-to-do back home, but my dad worked his socks off Mm -hmm. to build his career. I mean, the long and short of it is that he didn't understand, he just didn't see how I could make a career in architecture work so engineering was his choice and I just kind of went along with it and then when I graduated I said yeah I'm really not going to be an engineer I sort of vaguely remember him saying something along the lines of yeah well I understand that wasn't your choice so okay accountancy then that's what you're going to do (laughs) (laughs) although I have to say to be fair I learnt a lot about people towards the end of that sort of part of my uh, working life. I learned a lot about people, learning as well how to navigate differences of opinion and and get consensus and all that kind of stuff. So I think, I mean, as a business person myself, I think that business training is a gift Mm -hmm. for any other career. Absolutely. Because you still have to organize your career or your business or your efforts in the world. And it can just teach you so much about how to do that. Yeah. So having that background has definitely served me as I've pursued other things. Yeah. Yes, I, I agree. But what I was thinking about in terms of the the 20% not utilized is all this creative, the creative side of you and the person that's so moved by aesthetics and mm-hmm. design. So I want to get into that in a little bit. But first, I have to ask you about this incredibly interesting phrase about being the walking head. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what? The phrase came to me one day when I was um, walking somewhere. I was happy, ostensibly happy. You know, I had a good career. 
I had a lovely boyfriend, great friends, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But I just became really aware of the fact that I was on this treadmill of life. Monday would come around, I'd go to work and, you know, suddenly you're at Friday, then it was hockey at the weekends and the years were passing and I was getting older. And as I said, I was skidding towards that moment when I thought my ovaries were going to be expiring or everyone else was saying that was going to be happening. And I thought, is, is this it? And I actually physically had a moment as well. I was hyper aware of just using my brain and analytical. And then I'd look down and I'd see my arms swimming a lot, swinging along my feet walking. And it's only now that I'm sort of on the other side of that. And I don't see myself as a, as a walking head anymore. And I'm very aware of emotion. I, I will actively make a, a point of walking on grass or on gravel, not off concrete, for example, because I can hear that crunch and I'm connected to my feet and I can feel the heat in the air. I always had lovely conversations with friends, but now I'm really aware of people I like and the emotions that I feel in my body. Yeah. It's much more bodily experience. That sort of embodied versus disembodied. Yes. And yes. being integrated. Yes. Like mind body. So during those years when I felt like I was a walking head, I think, well, I was obviously unhappy because I had to go and make all these sweeping changes and, and, and I didn't know, but my body ended up telling me. And I often think I've got two daughters now and I, I'm really hyper aware with my eldest one who's sort of heading off to university now. And I talk to her quite a lot, probably annoyingly so actually. <laughs> <laughs> but I really want her to get that she doesn't have to get it right right now. Mm -hmm. But she needs to make the right decision for today for her. Because I think what happened to me, and like you say, I'm not unusual, I sort of followed this wave. And then after that, I was responsible for my own decisions. It was completely down to me. I could have left accountancy once I'd sort of qualified. I didn't. But, you know, just that one or two degrees away from where you want to be, 10 years down the line... You're oh, so yeah. far away. You're so far away. I couldn't help but laugh at this concept of competitive dinner parties <laughs> <laughs> that you were describing. <laughs> Which still go on. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and it so reminded me of this time in my life shortly after I finished business school. And I was so struck by how boring my life was going to get if I stayed Gosh. only on that path. Yes. And so I found that we d we had different tactics. Yeah. You were like, let me like, <laughs> let me stop this this train that I'm on right now. Like, let me like take it. But for me, the way that I approached it was I started deliberately getting involved in filmmaking and mm. writing and surrounding myself with creative people. Yeah. And that really helped to balance out my social circle which made me feel so much better in the world. So I wasn't personally the creating. I, mean, I was involved, but I was still in my day job because for me, financial security was just so important. It was yes. like top of the list for me. But I was like, I must have some other dimensions in my social circle or I will die. Yeah. So, um, and it just has worked so well to yeah. have that, di build in that diversity. Because I think someone who's unfulfilled in their career can just leave it and go pursue like you did, which is a brilliant move if you can do it and it's right for you. Yeah. But sometimes there'll be other things that will take priority. Like, at least for me, the financial security yeah. was a huge driver. But how else can you balance out your life? Now, your approach to balancing out your life was to call off your wedding. Mm -hmm. So that was a huge decision. Yeah. And I was so struck by the line in your story where you described your fiancé saying, it's just a shame that you had to do it so late and so publicly, mm -hmm. but I understand. Mm -hmm. 
I know he was he was incredible about it, really, because we did remain friends after we split up, which was incredibly generous of him, mm. given the circumstances of the split. Because I, ha- I, I he was right; I had left it too late. To be honest with you, I had been worried for quite some time, mm-hmm. and I confided in friends. But I think that the, the person that I listened to probably the most, she and I got on really well. A very good friend and it was good advice and for most people it would be good advice she said it's just pre-wedding nerves just you know it's just pre-wedding nerves just buy the house it's fine it's only bricks and mortar everyone goes through this and um if it doesn't work out it doesn't work out and i think for many people that would be right i probably should have maybe delved a bit deeper into it but to be honest then like i said my body took over and so you're in this walking head mode and your body says, my turn to speak up yeah. and lets you know this is not okay mm-hmm. in such an extreme way. So you're having panic attacks and... It was really, really strange. It was really, really strange. I mean, I went to the doctor about it because mm-hmm. I, I couldn't understand what was happening. I couldn't, you know, get on a tube. I lived in Clapham and I was commuting to Embankment, the Strand. I mean, really not a long commute. I used to have to get off and just sit on the side. I was hyperventilating. Probably the most defining moment was um, I was on the fourth floor of my office building and I, I had an office which had sort of a glass wall overlooking an atrium. And there was one day when I kept having these moments where, you know, when you go up or down in an elevator too quickly, you have that feeling. Yes. That's how it felt. I don't think I directly connected the two at the time, but I also had this overwhelming, this is not right for either of us. Wow. You know, and it sounds like your fiance agreed ultimately. Uh, yeah, yeah, he did. He did. I think he knew. And I don't know, it's, it, we were at an age where I suppose you feel everyone else around you is getting engaged and you're with someone you love. Right. You it know, sounds you're like a wonderful happy, person. Yeah, yeah. But suddenly saying yes for the rest of your life and you're thinking about, okay, oh, next comes babies and all of that kind of stuff. These are, if it, if it works out, and, and these are things that were just making me think, oh, I'm just, I'm really not ready at sure. all. Sure. Yeah. And you described your friend giving the, you the advice of it's just pre-wedding nerves. Mm-hmm. And I think that we have often the very best intentions when we give our friends advice, when we give each other advice. Mm -hmm. And I always try to distinguish between when I am saying what I would do if I were in your shoes versus what I would do if I were you. Yes. Because if I'm you, I'm really trying to get inside your experience and your values and your frame of mind and help you make the best decision for you versus what so often happens, which is, we skip over and we're like, well, if I were about to get married, I could not possibly call off a wedding. That will be so embarrassing and be so expensive and be this yes, and be that yes. and end up end up making essentially convincing someone who's trusting us. I think that's absolutely right to make that distinction. Because sometimes people really want you to tell them what to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and they'll come right out and say it. Just tell them. I would tell just, me what to I do. I just want yeah. someone to tell me what to do. It's very hard to say. I can't because yeah. I can't know what's exactly right for you. So then is, I think, a good time for questions. Yeah. And asking someone where it shows up in their body, like, where are you feeling it? Is it in your chest? Is it in your gut? Is it in your throat? Just as a signal to tune in. I think just being a person feels pretty fraught at times until you get to a place where you're kind of comfortable with yourself. Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening is there's a sense that if I let my emotions out, they won't stop. 
like, if I let myself cry, I might never stop. Mm-hmm. And so the sense of control, ultimately, yeah, I think it is. staying in our head is this false sense of control. Mm-hmm. I think I can control how I think. And I'll manage the rest of me. Yeah. I will tell the rest of yes, me what to do. Exactly. Until it rebels yeah. and says, my turn. <laughs> like, so. Yeah. Yeah. And that's I what was happening agree. for you. Yes. yes. Dee, I'm so, it's so sad. Thank you so much for sharing this incredibly tragic moment in your life where you lost your fiance who'd become a friend mm-hmm. and was clearly an incredibly important person. The moment in your story where you described his family scooping you up. Mm-hmm. I love that phrase so mm-hmm. much. It really seems to capture something. Yeah. Well, they caught me. Yeah. I mean, that's what they did. When we split up, we lost contact. Mm. And I guess I was the evil ex-fiancé, which is absolutely right. You know, of course, I was the one that called it off. And so they would be protective. and all. So to then turn around immediately with no pause whatsoever... And to just kind of bring me in and include me in all the kind of dealing with the grief and the bereavement and all of that kind of stuff was just, they're, they're just amazing people. I like the realness of this story, which you didn't leave that tragedy and go pursue your life, you know, the life you have now. It took time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a, about 18 months before I started making changes. And to be honest, it, I don't think I was particularly healed Mm. by the time I moved on, but it was part of the healing process. I'm not sure anyone ever heals from that. Would I say I'm healed now? Probably not. But I definitely think it was a landmark moment in my life that makes me think about the decisions I make now. So, you know, he's very much there when I'm thinking about not doing something I want to do because I'm fearful. I mean, obviously, there are things that I I can't do because, like you say, economic security and all that kind of stuff. Life is real, right? But if there's something that I could do, but I'm just feeling fearful, he pops into my head. And I just think I'm now really aware of the things he hasn't had a chance to do. Mm -hmm. And I'm still here. And so you took the course and made a 90 degree turn. Yeah. And pursued architecture and design yes what I really love is collaboration and using the things that I create to come up with other ideas like having this sort of tendril effect and you know I see it as branches on a tree and so when I built Calakanda House in Sri Lanka and then it became a hotel and now I think of all the different things I can use it for in terms of not just having people to stay, but what can we do in the community and how can we have our social impact? And it's not just financial giving, but can we use it for education? Can we open up our space and bring young girls in and teach them how to be confident and financially independent? All these things that sort of, some of these things land and some of them don't. Yeah. So I like thinking of myself now as just someone who tries to make the most of every opportunity, I suppose. Well, it sounds like you really are in that moment that you described the trip in 2016 to Sri Lanka and going mm. home in the sense memory and yeah. and you were with your now husband and yes. and two girls. Yes. And you know the story emphasizes making this change and finding yourself your creative self and making this big career change. Mm-hmm. But you also found love and had a family and have your two daughters and your husband who are now part of Kalakanda House. When they came in 2016 my husband as I mentioned, is English. And we we hadn't gone to Sri Lanka because I just didn't want to spend 
all my time in playgrounds, basically. <laughs> you wanted your girls to be a little older? I wanted to be able to travel and for them to be older. So by the time we went, my eldest was 11 or 12, youngest was nine. It's opened up their eyes as well to life in the East, how privileged we are over here, how things are done over there, just a completely different way of thinking, the colour, the smells, the sights, the sounds, everyone they speak to. It's a completely different way of thinking. They also had this sort of sensory overload, which they absolutely loved. So when I built it, it was meant to be an excuse for us to go back somewhere for us to go to. Then uh, I decided, well, you know, other people have to come and stay because someone's going to have to pay for this. The, account- <laughs> the accountant <Yeah>. comes back. <laughs> You're bringing all your training and skills yeah. together. No, well, that's absolutely right. And so when I thought, okay, other people are going to be basically in my home, I'm upping the ante and I'm going to turn it into a luxury boutique hotel. I cannot wait to visit. You have to. I oh my God, you will wait. love it. I will love it. I know I will love it. You'll I've love been on it. the website many times. <laughs> so I'm positive I, would I will love it. to. You've got to and come I to love, one of my retreats. I, that's what I was thinking, one mm-hmm. of your retreats, which mm-hmm. sound There's extraordinary. There's a few coming up. There's a Fantastic. few coming up. Well, we'll make sure. sure we put dates in yes. our show notes. Yeah. Now, when I come to visit you in Sri Lanka, can we also include storytelling? Yes. Yes. And I wondered mm. if you were to tell or develop another story, mm. do you have any idea what it would be about? One of the ideas I've just been pondering on recently, I'm going to say these words are going to come out this this mouth and I never thought I'd say it. The universe is sending me people... who are aligned with my vision. I mean, it's absolutely bonkers how many people I meet where we can collaborate or there's an overlap in ideas or I really kind of want to meet that kind of person who's going to fill this kind of idea. And then there they are. And I think that's a really interesting story because now I'm more open to it. I have to work really hard to kind of find out whether my gut instinct is saying yes or no. Mm -hmm. So I do a lot of yoga. And then at some point during the following days, someone will pop up. And I think it's really interesting. Now I feel like I'm open to a story unfolding as opposed to way back when, when I was in my 20s, trying to make a story happen. And thinking about the people in your life, there are a couple of teachers here and there. I look back now with a different sort of lens and I think, oh my God, that person actually had a massive impact. I remember my chemistry teacher, my A-level chemistry teacher, and we were doing our mocks and I hadn't revised. Mrs. Porter, her name was, Mrs. Porter with the shoes. And I hadn't revised (laughs) and I went in to this chemistry mock and everyone's sitting there sort of busy, busily writing away. I thought, oh. And I so I decided to write her a letter. And I said, Dear Mrs. Porter, I'm not going to insult your intelligence by pretending I revised because I haven't. So I'm going to write you a story about my life in some <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I spent 90 minutes telling her about my home life. This is when I was 17. Oh my God. Handed this paper in. I thought, oh God, I don't know how that's going to. Anyway, the long and short of it is she never told anyone else in the class. And when she then handed out the marked papers, she said, Denisha, can I have a word, please? And one of the things she said was, why don't you write? You're such a good writer. You're, you're creative. Why are you, you know, here? And I look back on, there are just people throughout my life. I think we all have them who I think we should listen to. And if oh, you sure. look look back it's like who are those people that have written our stories to now 
and how how could we be that person to somebody else Absolutely. I don't know. There's something in that interconnectedness, isn't there? And Absolutely. Plus, I love that story. Maybe that's your next story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Dee, thank you yeah. so much for oh, being here. Thank and thank you so much for giving us more of the context and amazing stories surrounding the story that you shared with us thank on you. stage. It's been such a pleasure. I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information about today's storyteller and conversation, check out the show notes. The True Story London podcast is hosted by me, Michelle Toth. Our producer is Ellis Ballard. Our theme music is by Sea Noise. Live recordings were provided by Laughing Around and recorded at 21 Soho. More information about our live shows and workshops can be found at truestorylondon.com. And just one more thing. If you haven't already, please subscribe or follow and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. It really does help us to reach more people. Thanks, and we'll see you for another episode soon.